prepared for the devil and his angels. The rebellion happened. The sin happened. The unthinkable in heaven itself. We're not talking about sin somewhere in, in Fredericksburg, Texas. We're talking about not sin in Las Vegas or San Francisco. We're talking about sin in the abode of God, in heaven, in the third heaven. And so the sin happened, the rebellion happened, the revolution happened. God then issues the sentence, issues the judgment. He prepares the place of judgment, the fire itself. And then what? The devil's not in hell. The devil is free. He is free to devour humanity today. The devil has not been cast into the lake of fire. After God prepares, issues the sentence, prepares the place of judgment, then what? Then God delays execution of the judgment, which raises the question, why? Why the delay? Why didn't he cast the devil into the lake of fire then in eternity past? Immediately. Why doesn't he cast him into the lake of fire now? All he has to do is speak it, and it'll happen. Why the delay? Why the delay with respect to the devil's judgment and the third of the angels who join the rebellion? The answer is found in God's plan for another creature. During the delay of execution of the judgment, God has created a new creature, a new creature for intimacy with him, intimacy that is far beyond any intimacy that any angel ever had with God. In the period of delay, God has created a new creature for intimacy and a new creature that is made in his own image, a description that is never used of the angels. The angels are not described as being made in the image of God. During the delay of the execution of the judgment, God has created a new creature that is designed to display his glory through the new creature in a fashion that is never described of the angels, in a fashion that outshines anything that the angels ever did or God ever designed for the angels. This new creature will receive more blessing from God than an angel ever did. And of course, the new creature that I'm speaking of is humanity, human beings. All of the aspects of humanity, these aspects that I've just described, are a threat to the devil. But it, what is the, the sharpest threat to the devil is not the things that I've just described with respect to humanity, God's plan for humanity that I've just described. It. What is most threatening to the devil himself, is that humanity is God's agent to execute the judgment. Humanity is God's agent to execute the judgment, to cast the, lake of, to, to cast the devil into the lake of fire. So the devil's objective with respect to humanity is to destroy you. The devil's objective is to destroy humanity. This is why the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8 that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, to devour. The devil hates you. The devil hates the idea that you would have intimacy with God. The devil hates the idea that you would have fellowship with God. The devil hates the idea that you would bask in the blessings of God. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God, and Adam and Eve enjoyed the blessings of God, so he killed them. 
This is why he killed Adam and Eve. I mean, Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning, which is to say he orchestrated the deaths of the first human beings. He orchestrates you die, your death. You die because of the devil. I mean, you die because of sin, but the devil is the one who introduced it ultimately into the human race. The devil, with his great beauty and persuasiveness, deceived the woman and sowed the seeds of doubt into her mind, and then they, the, the, the man just did it willingly. Ultimately, it's the devil who introduced judgment and sin and destruction and death and suffering into the human race because, of course, the devil knew the penalty for sin. He knew it since eternity passed when he was judged, but he knew it just like Adam and Eve knew it because God said, in the moment that you eat from the tree, which is to say the moment you disobey me, you will die. Dying, you will die, which, is, which means in the Hebrew, it's, a, it's a, an emphasis of the Hebrew verb to die. It means, sure enough, you're going to die. Dead, dead. Now, they didn't die physically. Adam, Adam lived for a thousand years, roughly. But immediately they died spiritually, which was the objective of the destroyer. When Adam and Eve sinned, they allowed the devil to invade the relation, their relationship with God, the relationship that humanity had with God. He invaded the human realm with sin and death and suffering and judgment. Ultimately, Satan is the reason why humanity is under God's judgment. He wants us to be under the same judgment that he is under. Through sin, tra Satan transformed our relationship with God from one of peace and intimacy and fellowship to one of enmity and conflict. But of course, God loves you. God loves humanity. And God's plan for fellowship and intimacy and blessing with humanity will not be thwarted. That's why immediately, immediately after the fall, God announces the destruction of the devil, Genesis 3.15, which we have seen many times. But let's look at it one last time in this study. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. In this verse, who is bruising the devil on the heel? Who is destroying, excuse me, on the head? Who is destroying the devil? It's a human. A human destroys an angel, the most powerful of all the angels, the most impressive of all the angels. A human, the seed of the woman, that term by definition is a human term, right? A woman is a human. Her seed is part of humanity. So a human, God ordains a human to destroy the one who invaded the relationship between God and humanity. The human here, of course, is the seed of the woman who is Messiah and all humans who are in him by faith. Now, of course, Messiah is also God, but God has attached himself to humanity so that our destiny is his destiny. This is the level of intimacy that God has planned for humanity. The devil tried to interfere, and so God uses a human to destroy the devil. 
the seed of the woman who is Messiah. The devil hates humanity because it is humanity who will destroy him. Colossians 1.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, rulers and authorities is a reference to demonic forces, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 1 Corinthians 15.24, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Again, a reference to demonic forces. Who's the he? Who's the he in these verses? It's a human. It's a human. It's the seed of the woman, Messiah. Jesus has already won the victory over the devil at the cross of Calvary, but the judgment will not be fully revealed. The judgment won't be executed until the end of Revelation 20 when the devil is finally cast into the lake of fire. The Father has delegated to a human to do that judgment. A human will oversee the devil, the most powerful of all the angelic forces. Remember, God, angels, humans, animals. Humans are below angels. But God has designated a human to oversee the execution of the judgment of the most powerful of angels, the anointed angel, the chosen angel. So God chooses, anoints a human to destroy the anointed angel, the chosen angel. You see the meta narrative. You see the big picture. You are not a historical accident. You are not the product of random evolutionary chance as your government wants to teach you. You are of extreme value to God. And you see where you fit in the meta narrative, in the big picture of God's plan, a plan that is unstoppable. Of course, the human that I'm referring to that will execute the judgment against the devil is Jesus, who is not just fully human, but fully God. Our destiny is linked to the Son of to the seed of the woman's destiny. When he died to sin, we died to sin, Romans 6, 6 through 11. When he was resurrected, we were resurrected with him, Colossians 2, 12. As he is seated at the right hand of the Father in majesty, so are we, Ephesians 2, 6. Our life is forever linked to his life, Colossians 2, 13. And you say, well, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I'm seated next to God the Father in heaven. I don't feel like I'm in a resurrection body because my body has wrinkles and my spine is starting to hurt, right? And my knee bothers me and my heel bothers me and I'm fighting off this disease and that disease and I got to take my vitamins every day. And maybe I have to take this medication or that medication. I don't feel that way. Well, guess what? How you feel, no offense, is irrelevant How you feel is irrelevant. What is relevant is God's promise. And God's promise is that you are identified with the seed of the woman. That is your identity. Everybody's always talking about my identity. I identify this way. I identify that way. And they're right. They're right to think of their identity. It's just they identify with sin. And your identity is 
the seed of the woman. You're in him by faith, which is to say you're so united with him that his destiny is your destiny. He died to sin, you died to sin. He's been resurrected, your identity is resurrected, and that identity will be revealed at the resurrection when Christ returns. We are positionally identified with him, whether we live like it or not, whether we act like it or not whether we think like it or not, this is why the devil hates you. This is why the devil seeks your destruction because you are identified with the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, Messiah. So the seed of the woman will eliminate the devil and the devil's works, the devil's kingdom. And by doing so, he will restore humanity to its privileged. Want to talk about privilege? Let's talk about privilege. Let's talk about privilege. Humanity has a privileged place above the angels, way above the angels. A privileged place of blessing. And it is the seed of the woman who will establish, reestablish, put us back in that privileged place of blessing, which leads me to the third and final part of the Abrahamic covenant. The blessing promise in the Abrahamic covenant Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see how many times bless or blessing, any, any, any one of its, its cognates are used? The word bless and the various forms of its word are used five times. This is a very, very important concept in the Abrahamic covenant. I think I mentioned a few weeks back that the Abrahamic covenant is multidimensional. Like the land and the seed promises, the blessing promise is three-dimensional. The blessing promise is personal, it is national, and it is universal. Personally, God blessed Abraham personally. You see this in the language where God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Someone blesses you, I will bless them. This is specific to Abraham in this promise. We'll get to the, to the, to the broader concept that's there in a moment. But personally, God blessed Abraham. He said he would make his name great, and he gave him as an individual a new land, a new land where to reside uh, within the land of Canaan. Then nationally, nationally, the nation of Israel is blessed by God because God made Abraham's descendants into a great nation. God gave Israel the land of Canaan and even beyond the most important of all of Abraham's descendants, Jesus, when he returns, will fulfill that land promise. Nationally, God will give Israel many, many blessings. When we get to the Mosaic Covenant next Sunday, the Mosaic Covenant is an outworking of the blessing part of the Abrahamic Covenant. So there's a, there's, when it comes to the blessing, there's a personal aspect to it, there's a national aspect to it, and there's a universal aspect to it. Through Abraham, all of humanity is blessed by God. 
That's why at the end of verse 3, there is the language of, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God repeats the same language to Abraham's son Isaac, Genesis 26, verse 4, by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God's talking to Jacob, excuse me, to, to Isaac there. Then God repeats the same thing to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 28, verse 14. In you, Jacob, and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see, this is where the seed promise and the blessing promise of the Abrahamic covenant intersect. They connect with one another. God blessed Israel in order to bless humanity. Israel is the pipeline through which God blesses the whole world. She's the vehicle through which he communicates his glory to the world. That's why every author of all 66 books of the Bible is a Jew, is a descendant of Abraham. Fulfillment of the seed promise and the blessing promise. The only exception to that is Luke and probably Job. But this is why the Savior of the world is a Jew, a descendant of Abraham the seed promise. This is why all the apostles are Jews, descendants of Abraham. This is why the world capital, first for a thousand years, and then the capital of the universe forever will be the city of the Jews, Yerushalayim. This is why a Jew will be the source of prosperity, first prosperity for the entire globe, first for a thousand years, and then prosperity for the entire universe in the eternal kingdom. The source of that prosperity is a Jew, Jesus. The point is that the seed promise and the blessing promise are interconnected. They're intertwined. Now, one thing I need to be clear about is that God chose Abraham and his descendants for this great privilege, not because they were virtuous, not because the Jews were great, No, the Jews are sinners just like everybody else. God chose the Jew for this great privilege, this great purpose, because God chose the Jew. Because God is sovereign. He could have chosen any other race. I mean, there are other races that exist at the time. He could have chosen an Asian man or a Germanic man, but he didn't. He chose a Semitic man. Why? Because he chose a Semitic man out of his sovereign decision is where this choice was made. Moses put it this way when he addressed the Exodus generation in Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, meaning you were not an impressive people, Israel. You weren't. And that's not why God chose you. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's oath to their forefathers is the Abrahamic covenant, given to Abraham, given to Isaac, and given to Jacob. That's why it's in the plural, forefathers. Because God uses the Jew to bless humanity, the devil has always always sought to exterminate the Jew, even from the very beginning, right? Exodus 1, where you have Pharaoh who is energized by the devil, and he issues the edict, 
kill all the baby boys. That's how you, that's how you eradicate a race. You get rid of all the men. And they can't make babies with the women, and so the women have to marry Egyptians, or the women have to marry Philistines, or someone else. And so Pharaoh, in an effort to exterminate the Jewish race, issues the order to kill all of the baby boys. Esther 3, Haman, satanically energized as well, has this plot to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Hitler, right? Hitler clearly satanically energized, has his plot to eradicate and exterminate all the Jews, millions of them, in Europe. Iran today has their plot, their desire, and I'm just quoting them, to wipe Israel from the face of the earth, to destroy them. These are satanically energized plots. They're not happenstance. These are things that are motivated by the devil, because the devil seeks to remove the Jew. He seeks to remove the Jew because the Jew is the conduit for blessing of all of humanity. But God has promised to protect the Jew. That's the part of the Abrahamic covenant that is there in verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's a promise specific to Abraham. As Abraham was in the new land, the land of Canaan, those who bless you, like Melchizedek, I will bless. Those who curse you, some, there, were, there were people who went against Abraham, and Abraham mustered an army and defeated them because God did that. That was a promise that was specific to Abraham. But some people say that's where the promise ended. It was unique to Abraham. That's not accurate. It's specific to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And the reason I say it applies not just to Abraham but to the descendants is because the plan of God didn't end with Abraham. It's the seed promise that is unconditional, that is unilateral, that is irrevocable, that is literal, that is eternal, that goes through the descendants of Abraham. Paul said that the true Jew is the one who is descended racially from Abraham, the DNA of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also a descendant of them through the pattern of faith. And so the promise of God blessing those who bless Abraham applies to him individually and to the race of Jews as well. And the flip side is those who curse them will be cursed by God because God is promising there to preserve and protect the descendants of Abraham so that through their seed, he will bless all of the races and all of the nations. The Old Testament prophet, prophets give us a sweet, sweet description of the universal blessing that will come through Abraham's descendant during the thousand-year reign. Let me show you just a few passages of that. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Remember, we're in the, the blessing part of the covenant, and that blessing part of, part of the covenant, we're in the universal aspect of that blessing. Not the, not the personal to Abraham, not the national to Israel, but universal to all of us, to all of humanity. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 reads like this. 
Now, it will come about that in the last days, that's a reference to the millennium, it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. This is saying that in the millennium, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Verse 3, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion. Zion is another way of referring to Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares. Here we go. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. It is very difficult for us to comprehend the breadth of this blessing. Because that's not the world we live in. We live in a world of conflict. We live in a world where it is wise to have a military. We live in a world where we have to defend ourselves. That is not the world during the phase of the universal blessing of the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman will bring to the planet during the millennium. When Abraham's descendant returns, armies, weapons, warfare will be no more. Something that is very difficult for us to comprehend. Zero wars. Zero weapons. The weapons will be gone. And the armies will be gone. They won't be needed. They won't be needed for two reasons. Number one, because the seed of the woman will reign. And number two, because the devil will be incarcerated Incarcerated for a thousand years, Revelation verse 20. Then in Isaiah 19, the prophet gives us an example of what peace between the nations looks like. Turn, please, to chapter 19 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23. In that day... That day is a reference to the millennium. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Just stop there for a minute. To us, we just hear, you know, Assyrians, Egyptians, whatever. I mean, it's just nations, right? But for... Isaiah, writing this to his generation, that would have been foreign to them because the Assyrians and the Egyptians are like this. They're in conflict. That's why the Jews would go to Egypt to protect themselves from the Assyrians. And so what Isaiah is saying here is in the millennium, an example of, of, of no need for weapons, no need for armies, of wars no more, is that the mighty Assyrians and the Egyptians will be in peace with one another. Verse 24, in that day, that day is the millennium, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. These words are foreign. Blessed is Assyria. 
We're talking about blessed is Assyria. Assyria, they are brutal pagans. I mean, what they would do to conquered peoples, you almost can't even mention. What they would, they would, I'll, I'll be general. I mean, when they would conquer a people, they would brutalize, brutalize the, 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 the conquered people. And what they would do to the, to the young, attractive men and the young, attractive women is beyond description, beyond thought. The Assyrians, brutal, pagans, wicked to the core. And here, Isaiah says, they will worship. They will worship the Lord. God says, blessed is Egypt, my people, and blessed is Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What we're seeing is that the seed of the woman is the source, the seed of the woman, Messiah, is the source of universal blessing. Blessing not just for, the, not for, just for Abraham, not just for the nation of Israel, but also for all the nations. Now, again, we're talking not in the year 2022. We're not talking about in the church age. We're not talking about in the seven-year tribulation. We're talking about when the seed of the woman returns. And so this language about blessing here in verse 25 this, and verse 24, it's taking us back to Genesis 12:3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then finally, look at Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, excuse me, chapter 35. Chapter 35, verse 5. Here we get another, a different type of prosperity in the millennium. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. In the millennium, Messiah will transform human health. He will eliminate most, if not all, diseases. This is why Jesus did the miracles that he did. This is why Jesus didn't walk up to a tree and turn a tree into a hippopotamus. You don't find that in the scripture anywhere. You don't find Jesus turning a rock into a bear. You don't find that anywhere. You don't find weird miracles. You find the miracles of Jesus evidencing that Jesus does what the seed of the woman, what Messiah was prophesied to do because he was offering the kingdom to Israel, but she rejected it. We saw not long ago that in Isaiah chapter 65, the lifespans will be much longer in the millennium where it will be shocking if anyone dies at the age of 100 we're seeing all these different aspects of universal blessing. No war, no conflict, incredible health, long lifespans. And all of this is part of the language. It's the unfolding of the prophecy in Genesis 12:3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This morning, we're going to finish a few minutes early. So let me just close with a summary of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is God's promise of land, seed, and blessing to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And through the covenant, all of humanity is blessed. 
but only that portion of humanity that accepts the blessing. The only portion of humanity that is blessed, God blesses, offers blessing to all of humanity through the Abrahamic covenant. But just like salvation, you only actually enjoy the blessing if you appropriate it. If you appropriate it by faith, by submission to the seed of the woman, which then attaches you, identifies you, puts you positionally in the seed of the woman by faith. And so the Abrahamic covenant is God's promise of land, seed, and blessing to Abraham and to his descendants. And through the covenant, all of humanity is blessed, which is to say God offers blessing to all of humanity. The fact that humanity has the Bible is a blessing. Now, the person who thinks the Bible is a joke, they don't enjoy the blessing. It's there. The Savior has come, which is a blessing, but that blessing is not appropriated, is not accepted unless the person accepts it by faith. The Abrahamic covenant is literal, unconditional, unilateral, eternal, and irrevocable. It's literal, unconditional, unilateral, eternal, and irrevocable. And God stakes his very name on the covenant. We saw in the book of Hebrews that God could swear by no one else, no one higher than himself. And so he swore to Abraham based on his own name. This is the great wonder of God. This is the plan of God, the, the meta-narrative of the Scripture, that God created a new creature, humanity, for God to fellowship with, for God to have intimacy with, for God to communicate His glory through, and that creature will be used by God to judge the higher creature, the angel. All the angels who fell, the, fall, the, the devil and the one-third of the angels. This is how God is working his plan. It's through the Abrahamic covenant. And so the Abrahamic covenant impacts all of Scripture from beginning to end, from Genesis through Revelation. God stakes his very name on the fulfillment of the promise, the promises that are in the covenant. And so... The only way for the covenant to not be fulfilled is for God to not exist, which is an impossibility. The covenant will cease to exist as soon as God ceases to exist, which is right after never. The Abrahamic covenant is the first of the four covenants, the first of the four major covenants in the Scripture. Today we finish the Abrahamic covenant. Next Sunday we'll begin the Mosaic covenant which is the covenant, the, the, the promise that God makes with Israel by which Israel receives the blessing that is for them in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the blessing is personal, national, and universal. Well, national is for Israel. And the way they receive the national blessing is through the Mosaic covenant. And we'll see more of that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. We ask that you 
implanted in our minds. We ask that you open our minds that we may see the breadth of it, the wonder of it. We ask that you give us a heart of amazement and awe and wonder at what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.